We're going to be in Luke chapter 10 this morning. Luke chapter 10. Continuing our series, Jesus for Everyone. And I feel like I say this every week, but uh, we're going to see that idea of Jesus is for everyone front and center in our text today. It is, it is going to drive most of the text today and uh, so much so that uh, it, it is a, it, this idea that Jesus is for everyone, that the Messiah would be for everyone, is almost a complete shock to those who hear this story whenever Jesus tells the story. Um, Luke chapter 10, we're making our way verse by verse through the book of Luke. This is kind of how we do it most of the time. And, uh, and we find ourselves uh, today that even though the, the original audience may have been shocked to hear what Jesus had to say, uh, for us, the audience here reading this passage, uh, it's not going to catch you guys by surprise at all. In fact, I would say it's easily one of the top five most referenced or known Bible stories to our pop culture. Uh, in fact, the final episode of the most watched sitcom of all time, Seinfeld, re- revolved around this very uh, this very text. It, it, it re- revolved around the application of this text. So, so you undoubtedly know this story or have referenced this story in your own life, even if you have never read the Bible. You know uh, this one. We're going to be talking about the story of the good. Samaritan. But don't check out thinking, hey, I already know this story. I already know where we're going to go. I've got the application down. I understand how this works. Uh, my guess is that we may have missed the, the, the real point that Jesus is driving at uh, in here. Maybe not, but I think for many of us, I know certainly for me, I think we may have missed uh, the real point in this little parable. So let's not waste any time. Let's dive into the text, Luke chapter 10. Uh, and, and see what we can learn from this little interaction that Jesus has uh, and uh, the story that he gives us. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer, when you hear lawyer, do not think like, uh, like uh, Matlock. That's not what we're talking about. Is that lost on, on like most of you in this room? I'm going to guess most of you, that's, that reference is lost on you. Uh, do, do not think like a, a courtroom, uh, a courtroom that, this is like a religious scholar would be kind of a better way to, to describe this guy. Uh, behold, a, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he, this is Jesus, said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? So that's the setup to the story. But the setup to the story is almost as important as the story. Uh, This lawyer is coming to Jesus with an agenda. We see that at the very beginning. It says a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. So this is not a a religious scholar that's coming up to Jesus saying, I want to learn more, Jesus, will you teach me? This is a religious scholar who's coming up to Jesus saying, I know the answer to this. Let's see if you know the answer to this, Jesus, because I'm going to bet that if I can get you to twist your words or turn your words around, that I can can probably see uh, what kind of teacher you are. You know, there are different schools of thought within uh, the, the Jewish life there and the Jewish world of, of how to interpret the law. And he, he kind of wants to find out where Jesus falls on the spectrum of how to interpret the, the law. 
so it's not an innocent desire to learn. It is very much an agenda to uh, trap. He wants to put Jesus to the, to the test. So it's not a friendly exchange. Uh, he isn't so much asking what he needs to do in order to be saved. He is more asking, what would Jesus say that he needs to do? That is the important, to, the, the important part. So Jesus does what Jesus does all throughout the Gospels. He doesn't take the bait, but he turns the question back and he says, what do you think? What do you say is the answer to your question? Essentially, you're a religious scholar. You know the law. What does the law tell you? So Jesus flips it back on the guy and the guy's a little caught off guard, but he answers him pretty, pretty quick. Um, and, and so, so at this point, the, this, this lawyer, this, this religious scholar has two choices. When, when Jesus turns it back on him and says, what does the law say? He can either read the entirety of the law, which is, uh, uh, somewhere between six and 700, maybe even closer to 800 different laws, depending on how you sort them out. When we say laws, we're not talking about like, like laws passed in a, in, in a court of law like we would think of. We're talking about religious rules. This is what we're talking about. Uh, and there's somewhere between 700, 800 or so. And this guy has a choice. He could just start reading them. And he could say, all right, Jesus, you want to know what the laws are? Let me tell you. Or he can do what all of us would do. He can try to summarize the law. And he can try to boil it down into just a couple of sentences. Uh, and so he, he does that. He, 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 summer, he, he boils it down. He boils it into a summary. And let's give this guy credit. It's a good summary. He does a good job here of summarizing uh, the, the law. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus hears that response, and he's like, yeah, that's it. You go do that, you're good. You will have eternal life. That's a good Summary, well done, your rabbi has taught you well. Nice job. But the lawyer at this point is not quite done. And this is where he kind of makes his, his, his misstep, if you will, in trying to trap Jesus. Uh, he makes a move from, from trying to trap Jesus to trying to prove himself. To kind of show himself to be not just a good scholar of the law, but as one who deserves eternal life to justify himself, as it says here. He senses an opportunity, and if he's not going to make Jesus look bad, because it looks like Jesus has kind of uh, you know, bobbed and weaved and, and missed that punch, if he's not going to make Jesus look bad, then he's at least going to make himself look good. Uh, and that's what he, he, he seeks to do. Uh, and, and, and this is where Jesus finds an opening. This is where Jesus kind of sneaks in there. He, he, uh, the, this lawyer asks the question, and who is my neighbor? Now, what, what prompts this question? We're not told why this, this religious scholar would ask this question. We're not, we're not told why he decides to kind of uh, put himself out there in this way. We're not, we're not really uh, uh, told, but if he's trying to justify himself, let's, let's kind of like, like put the pieces together. If he's trying to justify himself, uh, then, then he must feel pretty confident about the question that he's asking. 
He must feel pretty confident that his life will give a good answer to the question that he is asking. He must feel like he has gotten the the like a good neighbor badge from like Hebrew scouts or something. He must feel like he can check that box better than most. And if he can check that box better than most, according to the summary that he just gave and Jesus' response to him, then he can also check the box for eternal life. He is good to go, which means he can, he can sign off as having all his bases covered within the Jewish faith. But his framing of the question completely gives him away. He doesn't ask the question, and how can I be a neighbor that shows love to others? That's not how he asked the question. He asked the question, who is my neighbor? And the question reveals his heart. He's not really driven by a desire to be a good neighbor at all. He's driven by making sure he can keep his good neighbor badge. That's what drives his actions. He wants to be able to say, there, I did it, check the box, and we are good to go. But that's not how the law is supposed to work. That's not how it's supposed to work. You see, the the law is used for two purposes. It is used to create a standard... And it is used to reveal our hearts. I've talked about this before. The law is like like an MRI or like a a CAT scan. Whenever I had to go to the hospital a couple weeks for this thing in my my arm, this pinched nerve or whatever it is that I got uh, going on, the the idea is that I sat down on this table, was pushed back into this this CAT scan while this thing like whirled around me. And then ever I, I, I came back out and stood up, and here's the thing, whenever I came back out of that little tube where I was getting the CAT scan, my arm still really hurt. Because the point in the CAT scan was never to fix my arm. It was to be able to see inside my body and figure out what was wrong with my arm. It was there to reveal the problem. It wasn't there to, to it, it, it wasn't there to make me healthy. This is the way the law works. It is not there to make us healthy, but to reveal what is wrong with us, to show us where we are broken, but it won't be what makes us whole. And this is where the lawyer gets this wrong. This man is trying to use a diagnostic tool, something that tells him what's wrong, as a path towards healing. Instead, it's just revealing how broken he is. You see, this guy wants to keep the letter of the law, do exactly what it says. But the law isn't meant to be, the the, the law is meant to be a guide to show us how to live and how to be. There's a big difference from honoring the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. Let let me try to, to illustrate this. Uh, in, in kind of a, a bit of a silly way. I'm not sure have, have, if, if any, of you, any of you guys have had a chance to play, away, play around with uh, like AI-generated content. Uh, that would be artificially, uh, artificial intelligence-generated content. So this is like chat GPT, that kind of stuff. Some of y'all are like, yeah, I know exactly how to do that. That's how I did my homework this week. Uh, and I had the, 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 the AI write my paper for me. Um, don't do that, by the way. But and others of you are like, what are you talking about? I'm, I'm not really even sure how my, my phone works. So, so the, the, what, what AI is, and it's, a, it's, it's artificial intelligence, and it is like, uh, it's honestly a little bit scary what it can do. And so you, you have people out there like, like Mark Cuban and Elon Musk and these like whiz kids 
that are asking other guys like Bill Gates, who are also really smart, and, and his crew at Microsoft, to slow down the development of AI because it's getting too good too fast. It's getting too powerful too quick. And they're basically saying, now we're just going to keep on, keep on going with this. Uh, and so in, in a few years, AI, that is like uh, something that, that generates content based on the input that you give it, all right? Uh, in a few years, that may take over our world like Terminator style. In the meantime, while like evil people use it for those purposes, like, pe- like peasants like, like, like me, we, we use it to like do dumb stuff, okay? We, we use it to do like really, really ridiculous stuff, uh, silly things. Like one of the things that has become really popular is uh, it's AI-generated artwork, Okay. AI-generated artwork. So I don't know if anybody have you seen these pictures floating around. You, you've seen these kind of things. I know some of you have tagged me in, in social media on, on some of this because these are, these are pretty funny. I'm going I'm to ask you if you can identify for me what you think the, the computer created this. This is like a painting, but the computer created it. You, if you can tell me what Bible story is trying to be illustrated. So show us the first one here. All right, who, who, what do you think that is? All right, this is Moses being pulled out of the reeds, right? All right, so that, that looks like a photo, like a selfie. But they did not have iPhones back then. Uh, so that is, not what, what is what, that, that is not what's going on there. That is completely generated by artificial intelligence. All right, the next one. All right, so what's this one? All right, so this is Moses again at the Red Sea, like trying to figure out how do we get across this sea with Egypt behind us. All right, one more. The next one. All right, so this is Daniel in the lion's den. Selfie with Daniel in the, in the, in the lion's den, right? This is pretty good. This is good stuff. Um, I like that all the lions are smiling for the picture. That's the part that I like. I don't know how AI decides. Let's make the lions smile. Uh, all right, we got one more. I'm going to see if you can get the, capture, the, the input for this one. This is Jesus flipping over the tables in the temple. That's what this is. That's pretty good, isn't it? Now, now the thing is, the way that this works is you get a prompt, and then in the prompt, you type in what you want the, 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 the artificial intelligence to create, okay? So the prompt here is, AI, paint for me a picture of Jesus flipping over the tables in the temple, now, technically, AI did exactly what you asked for it to do, right? Technically, like, this is one of those, well, it's, it's not wrong. This is, but obviously, we know this is not, this is not how it looked, I don't think, unless we really just got that story all mixed up, uh, and, and Jesus is actually really good at, at parkour or something, I don't know, but I this is not what that, that story actually represents or looks like, right? But by the letter of the, the, the command, this is, this is the picture you come up with, right? All right. So in a really silly, ridiculous kind of stretch of, of the imagination here, uh, AI is interpreting the input of Jesus flipping over the tables in the temple with the, the same approach as this lawyer, in the sense that the lawyer wants to technically do exactly what the law says. So long as you can meet the technical definition, then all is well. The lawyer wants you to be able to see his life and say, well, he's not wrong. 
He did exactly what, he was, what, what, what the law says he's supposed to do. You can see that this man isn't interested in what the law is trying to teach us to be, but only what the law requires us to do. He'll do whatever, but he doesn't want to go beyond what he has to do. So then Jesus tells this story, the one we know so well. Luke chapter 10, verse 30. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, and he gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these men do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man? who fell among the robbers. And he said, the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So the lawyer, in his effort to get his legal ease right uh, and, and kind of show himself to be good, gives us a peek into his heart. And then Jesus tells this simple story to reveal where his heart is at. And this story does profound work. Now let's just make sure we've got the basics here of this story. I don't, it's, it's pretty self-explanatory, but let's make sure we got the basics. We meet a man that was walking from Jerusalem to Jericho. We don't know much more about him. The assumption is that he was probably an Israelite, uh, but we don't really know a whole lot about this guy, only that uh, he was walking a, a road that would have been well known to his original hearers for being an exceptionally dangerous uh, road. It was well known for exactly this, for people getting robbed, for people getting mugged and left for dead. This is not like a, a, a simple, like a, like a carjacking and the, you get out of my car, I'll take your car and we'll leave you here all as well. This is, uh, people were routinely killed. Uh, there's some that would even say this, this road was known as the way of blood. That's how, that's how routinely, this was the bad part of town. This was the part where you're like, don't go there uh, unless you're with a group. And this guy went on his own, and then this what, is what would happen. Easy prey for the would-be, uh, the would-be robbers. This man is beaten within an inch of his life, left for dead. And that's when we meet our next three characters in the story. A lot of people like to draw a lot of conclusions about who these guys represent. And frankly, I think it's all really unnecessary. You have a priest... Uh, you, you have a priest, which is the group set apart for religious services in Israel, and you have a Levite, the group that is set apart to serve as assistants to the priest in the religious services in Israel. So you got these two guys that are known for their religious service and for their care of the poor. That's what they would have been uh, known for. Uh, they, they, they are the ones that should be known to be the best practicers of the law the ones who, who put into practice the law better than anyone. Jesus says they pass by and they make it a point to walk on the other side of the road, not to just not help the guy, but to stay as far away from the guy as possible. Doesn't say why they do that, and frankly, it doesn't 
matter a whole lot why they do that. The bottom line is they are not going to help this man. That is the point. They don't want to help him. The men that knew the law and the men that practiced the law aren't going to help. This is crucial here. If the law is love God and then love your neighbor as yourself, these guys should be putting that into action. So it's at this point in the story, this lawyer has to be asking, where is this, where is this Jesus guy going with this? Where is he going with this? What is his point? Okay, these guys walked by and didn't help him. That lawyer's probably thinking, well, that doesn't sound good. Uh, but where's Jesus going with this? And that's the, where the, the third part of this comes in and would have been so, so far removed from the concept of what could, could possibly happen that Jesus' original hearers would have been like, where in the world did he come up with that? That's ridiculous. This could never happen. Uh, and this third guy is a Samaritan. Now, we've talked about the Samaritans a bit uh, over the years and really just in, in, in recent sermons here. We're talking about uh, the, 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 the Samaritans. Remember last chapter, James and John had been sent out on mission. They had to go to a Samaritan village. The Samaritan village would not give them uh, a place to stay. And what is the solution of James and John of what to do about this Samaritan village? Jesus, let us call down fire and evaporate this place. Won't you be proud of me? Like they say that because they think Jesus will be proud of them for, for this solution. And Jesus' basically reply to them is like, you're a, you're a fool. You have no idea what you guys are, uh, you, you guys are, are, are talking about. Uh, they had so badly missed the point of the mission they were supposed to be on. Uh, in, in making this request. But they thought they were totally justified in that request because in their minds, that's exactly what should happen to the Samaritans. They should be gone. Call down fire and leave them in the dust. So that gives you an idea where like the average Jewish mind would have been. This isn't just racism in the sense that they thought they were better than the Samaritans, but this is like the Samaritans were their sworn enemy, and they needed to be gone off the face of the earth. Samaritans thought Jews were evil in the way that they worshiped God, and vice versa. They hated each other. The hate was mutual here. Uh, and it's really at a level that I, it's hard for me to find comparisons as to how bad it is and how much they did not like Uh, one another. So making this guy the third character, uh, Jesus is getting their attention very, very clearly. The Samaritan not only goes to the dying man, his sworn enemy, he cares for him at a level that is sacrificial and is costly. He bandages his wounds in order to heal him. He puts puts him on the saddle, the the place where the, the Samaritan should be, and he takes him to a place to be cared for. He pays the man's debts for his care, and he promises to come back and check on him to see that he is okay and that all his debts are covered. He didn't know this man other than his race and his nationality. That's all that this Samaritan knew about this man and that he was hurt. That's all he knew about this guy. And his compassion, it says here, drove him to move past his race and nationality to care for the man that was hurt. Now, this is the point where we have to get to the application of the story. Because that's the story. It's simple enough. It's, it's, it's profound, but it's simple. And this is the point where we need to get to application. And it would be easy for us to say the application of this story is don't be a racist. 
And on some level, that is a good application of this story. It's easy to think that the story tells us that we should be kind to people. And that's fair enough. That's a good application of this story. Even when it's costly, we should be kind. Good application. It's easy to think that this story tells us that the mission of God is to be carried out, at least in part, by caring for those that are very much not like us. And that is an application of this story, for sure. All of these things are true. We cannot look at this story and draw final conclusions without first at least acknowledging those lessons that this story teaches us. We must be people that care physically and emotionally for those that are around us. We must not be a people that are stopped by race or anything else that would make those around us other, even if, even if that means that they are not believers. That's like a common thing that goes around. It's like, I don't have to care for these people because these people don't believe like I do. They're not on my team. I don't have to care for them. This story does away with that. It says that is, not, that, is, that is not the way that we carry out the mission of God. We must be a people that are marked by our compassion. Yes, the gospel is what people need. But if our compassion to both insiders and outsiders, if, 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 if that doesn't make us a people known for our compassion, if this story doesn't teach us to be a people known for that, then we have missed the point. We have fundamentally misunderstood the gospel if we cannot care for people that are other and are somehow different than us. But this story is not fundamentally about any of those things. Not first and foremost. They are byproducts of the parable. But the point of the parable is to answer the lawyer's question. Who is my neighbor? That is the point of the parable. And Jesus does a masterful job of setting up this would-be self-justified lawyer. He tells the story and then he flips it all around. The lawyer is trying to limit the definition of neighbor. That's the whole point in the lawyer's question, right? Who is my neighbor? He's trying to limit the definition of the word neighbor, of what it means to be a neighbor. Jesus doesn't ask the lawyer, now, was the Samaritan obligated to care for the beaten man because it was his neighbor? He doesn't ask that question. What Jesus does is he asks the lawyer, which of these men behaved like a neighbor would have? You see, the first question, if, if Jesus asked the question, was the Samaritan obligated because this man was his neighbor, then, then the lawyer could have said, well, no, he wasn't obligated. He was just being a nice guy. But he didn't have to care for that guy. But Jesus doesn't ask that question. He asked the question, which one of these men behaved like a neighbor would behave? And it forces the lawyer to recalibrate and get away from a strict definition and get back to the sense of what the whole point in the law was in the first place. So he says, what does your law tell you? And the thing is, it doesn't say specifically what it looks like to love your neighbor. 
Because figuring out what a neighbor is, is not the rule. That's not the point. The idea of being a neighbor is not something that comes from a legal definition. It's something that comes from deep within inside you. Translation says that the, the Samaritan had compassion, which is good. I don't know what translation you got. It may say pity. The, 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 the Samaritan had pity on this man. Those are both probably good translation, but it loses some of the, the, the force there. It's a compassion that kind of wells up inside of you and compels you to care, forces your hand to care for someone else. That's the idea here, that the Samaritan was driven by his compassion for this person. Jesus then says, now you go and be like that. Don't worry about defining who a neighbor is. Live like a neighbor would. And how does a neighbor live? Driven by a compassion that wells up from inside of him. If you'll remember all the way back in Luke chapter 5, for those of you guys that were here for that a few months ago, uh, I, I, I asked how you, would define, uh, how you would define discipleship. And I read this quote from, uh, from the author James K.A. Smith. It is this. So discipleship is more a matter of hungering and thirsting than of knowing and believing. Jesus' command to follow him is a command to align our loves and our longings with his, to want what God wants, to desire what God desires, to hunger and thirst after God, and to crave a world where he is all in all. Listen, I will be the first to tell you that the Bible teaches that salvation is by grace and grace alone. That it is not works that will get us to, to heaven, that you cannot earn eternal life but what, by what you do. But Jesus never shies away from telling people to go and do likewise. To go and do things. Their salvation demands their action. He never tells us that that our works earn our salvation, but that our salvation, if it is real, demands that works follow. There There is no such thing as being saved by faith without works. They are married together because without works, you are shown that you don't actually have faith. This is James chapter two, is it not? James 2:14 What good is it my brothers if someone says he has faith but he does not have works can faith can that faith not can faith save him can that faith save him if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and if one of you says to them go in peace be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body what good is that so also faith by itself if it does not have works is dead But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. This is James' whole point. If our faith is going to mean anything, it must mean something in how we live and how we act. The two go together. But just as Uh, that James K.A. Smith said, it's not just about doing works. It's about an innate desire that drives us to those works. This is what James is talking about. James is not imploring us to go do works. He's imploring us to, to have a faith that then motivates us to go out and do those things. 
This religious lawyer did not have that innate desire, and that was his entire problem. When Jesus says, go and do likewise, he's saying, go and be driven by compassion with that same kind of compassion as a neighbor should have. He's not giving the lawyer a new law. He's not giving the lawyer a new to-do list. He's not giving the lawyer more to do. He's not saying, go out and start a violent crime recovery ministry in the name of God. If that was the goal, he'd have made the Samaritan the guy in the road and the Israelite, the lawyer, the guy that came to help him. But that's not the dynamic Jesus sets up. It's not the Samaritan in the road and the Israelite then shows how much he loves loves God by caring for this guy. That's not the dynamic. It's the Israelite in the road, in the gutter that is dying and it is the Samaritan that comes to help him. And that is the irony of how we typically apply this sermon. We turn it into one more law and the whole point is the law is not sufficient. This is a law given by Jesus, not the law of Moses, but it's still just another thing to do. The entire point of the message is that the Samaritan on the road had no obligation to help the man. Understand that. Jesus is not saying you have an obligation to help the man that is hurting. He does not say that. That's the whole point is there was no obligation, but he still showed himself to be a good neighbor that loved his neighbor by his actions. That's the point. Hear me, the whole point is there was no obligation. He didn't have to stop and care for the man. It doesn't even say that the guys that passed by him were were wrong in the sense that they were sinning by not helping the guy. The point is, the Samaritan had no obligation to help his enemy. And yet he did it anyway. Instead of creating a new law, Jesus is answering this lawyer's question, who is my neighbor? He's saying, stop looking for the limitations of the legal definition of neighbor and start living as though you're not driven by limitations in the law, but by extravagant grace that you would have wanted if you were the one dying on the side of the road. Those driven by the law will not see the man and help him. They will look to the technicalities of the law in order to justify themselves. But the paradox of the gospel of grace is this, that those that are driven by grace will be the ones that actually fulfill the demands of the law. Do you see how that works? If you're driven by the demands of the law, you will not help the man. But if you are driven by grace, you will stop and help the man. And in doing so, you will then fulfill the law. It is amazing how the gospel changes that for us. And as Christians, this is what guides us. This is what leads us. This is what drives us. Do you understand the power of this parable and what it is teaching? We should not be trying to figure out which one of these three men in the story we are. Are we the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan? And the goal is to be the Samaritan. 
The idea is that we are the man in the road. Let me ask you, if you were beaten, left for dead, and in desperate need of a rescue, and you, a sworn enemy, a sworn enemy of the stranger that comes up to you on the road, and you offer, and, and, and this stranger offered to bandage your wounds, to make you whole, and to offer you grace that you had not earned at great cost to this enemy that has come up to you. But even at great cost, the, the offer of grace remained. Would you want that grace if you were the one on the road? It's your only hope to live. But your only hope to live comes from an enemy and a stranger. And the only way that he can offer you the grace is at great cost to himself. Would you still want the grace? Yeah, you would. Because it's the only way for you to live. Because to refuse the grace would be to choose death. And if you had been a recipient of that grace, if you had been a recipient of that grace, the man on the road, once received, once you are made whole again, once you are back on your feet and you are out of of ICU and the care that you had there, would you look around and then ask the question, now who is the neighbor, who is my neighbor, and what does the law require out of me? Or... Would you have an innate desire to live out the same grace that you have received? Which one would you be driven by? Would you say, well, I know that guy helped me even though he had no obligation, but I'm only going to help those that I have to help. Or would you say, my life was saved by a man who did not have to save me. And now I am, am not, not just obligated, I am driven by an innate desire to live in the same way. Obviously, the experience of grace would radically change the way you viewed the world and the way you lived in the world. You wouldn't need the law to make you a neighbor. The grace would have already made you a neighbor. Friends, this is the gospel And this is the message of the Christian life. If anyone tells you any different, they are preaching a different gospel than Jesus and a different gospel than Paul. Listen to some of these verses here as I kind of bring this to a close. Romans 5, 6 through 11. For while we were still weak and at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for the other. Christ died for the stranger. Christ died for the one that was not like him. Christ died, as we'll see here in just a minute, for the enemy. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, still enemies, still on the other side, still other, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of the Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Do you see this? We were the man on the side of the road in desperate need of grace, in desperate need of of, of someone to come and save our life, in desperate need of being bandaged and made whole, in desperate need of being rescued. 
And we were enemies to the one person that could rescue us. And he rescued us anyway. That's the gospel. That's the story of the good Samaritan. Enemies in need of grace owed nothing. Left for dead to reject the grace of life would be to choose death. And just as the Samaritan had no obligation, neither did Jesus. No obligation to us. But at great cost to himself, he did it anyway. 1 John 4, 19 says this, We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. You can put that in there. If anyone says, I love God and hates his neighbor... He is a liar. For he who does not love his neighbor, whom he has, not, has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother, love his neighbor. Christ showed his love in that he died for us while we were still sinners, enemies to God. And now we love because he first loved us. Not out of a technical definition of a law, but driven by an innate desire, birthed in us from the grace that we have received. The gospel in the Christian life in two verses and a story about an enemy that showed grace and restored his enemy to life at great cost to himself. If you are a Christian, this is your story. And if you are a Christian, this is your mission. Let's pray. Father, it is our confession that we are... Our default mode, Father, is frankly to justify ourselves to rationalize, to limit, to, to hold back, to only fulfill the, the, the specifics of the law in its most technical definition and then justify ourselves with it. Father, teach us to be a people that are not driven by the letter of the law but that are driven by the grace we have received. Not a people that dismiss the law, but a people that, that love the law and fulfill the law's demands. Because we, an enemy to you, have been shown grace and mercy. Brought back from the brink of death, from death to sin, to new life in Christ. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.